0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman Family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 215, Passover Reimagined. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson.
1: And I'm Lex Rothberg.
0: And this was scheduled to be the last episode in our lead up to Passover series. We've been exploring the holiday of Passover and all kinds of new thinking regarding elements of Passover, regarding all of Passover. We've been exploring that over the past six weeks or so. And today is our conclusion episode, or was meant to be our conclusion episode, where we wrap it all up and try to do some brainstorming about how we might experience Passover differently given what we've explored and thought about over the last few weeks. Well, boy, how the world has changed over the last two weeks. We recorded this episode about two weeks ago. I had some travel coming up, and we wanted to record it before I left for my trip. And that was two weeks ago, and the world just changed so much over those two weeks. We all know that it's now the period of physical distancing due to the coronavirus, COVID-19. And the ideas that we discuss in this episode about Passover seem clearly not quite as relevant as they might have been. And yet. We still think they're relevant in the sense that what we're trying to do here is some creative thinking about Passover. The specific ideas that we had when we had this conversation two weeks ago may not exactly be the specific ideas that are going to work for this Passover, but maybe the style of thinking will be helpful to you as you consider what to do this Passover, given the fact that we're not going to be able to get together with other people. We might be having Passover on Zoom. We might not be able to get all the foods that we need. We might not even be able to get matzah. So these are all things that in the world of designers are called constraints and constraints are often seen in the design world as something that forces your creativity. And in terms of creativity, let me just tell you how we've spent the last two weeks, if you don't already know. Like I said, we recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago. We knew about the coronavirus, but it seemed something kind of distant. It didn't seem like it was gonna hit us in the way that it did, or certainly we didn't understand that at the time. And then all of a sudden it did, and we jumped into action. We created something called Jewish Live. You can check it out at www.jewishlive.org or check it out on Facebook. It's our response to the coronavirus. It's our response to the idea that so many Jewish events, so many in person Jewish events, basically all in person Jewish events were being canceled. And both because of a lack of being able to do Jewish things and also because of the social isolation that's clearly happening because of this physical distancing, we thought it would be great to create a central portal for organizing all the live streaming events that are happening all over, that have been happening before, that are going to start happening more and more going forward, and also to creator, caused to be created, all kinds of new live streaming events of our own. So if you check it out, you'll see that we've already done a bunch of events, we've shared a lot of events on our Facebook page, and in the coming week we're going to be doing a lot on Jewish Live, a lot of live events, regular shows that people are doing, past guests on Judaism Unbound are doing their own shows, all kinds of explorations of Passover, and we hope it's going to help you. So please check it out, and please listen to this week's episode with the mindset that perhaps the creative way in which we were thinking two weeks ago is still relevant today and will still help you think. And we're gonna be building on that all week on Jewish Live. When we do these episodes where it's just Lex and me debriefing on what we've been talking about over the last few weeks, we often make an ask for for money. We often ask you to donate to Judaism Unbound. If you've been a regular listener, maybe something like $50. If you are an occasional listener, maybe $18. And if you're someone who can give more, then please give more. Now that we've launched Jewish Live, it's even more critical that you support this work if you can not with large amounts, with small amounts. If everybody listening to this episode right now donated $50, it would be incredible. We'd be able to keep Judaism Unbound strong, and we'd also be able to pour all our energy into Jewish Live and making it the thing that we really need in this time. So I know everybody's having difficult times. If you are able to just give a small amount, please head over to www.judaismunbound.com donate, or www.jewishlive.org donate, and make a donation. It would be a wonderful and meaningful thing to do before Passover. It would help this work a lot, and we're really grateful for your willingness to do that. And now let's jump into our episode that I'll remind you again, we recorded two weeks ago, and it was our debrief of the series of episodes that we've had over the last few weeks looking at different elements of Passover. We hope you enjoy, we hope you don't mind the chipper tone that we had, and we hope that maybe it's a little bit of a light in the darkness. So we're just going to jump right into it. And here we go. Lex, I was thinking about the conversations that we've been having over the last few weeks and how we might frame things. What what do we think are the big takeaways that have serious implications for how we might think about observing Passover going forward? I'm curious what really struck you.
1: Yeah, so many things. Many things struck me. Um, here's where I'd start. Um, I keep on thinking back to this passing moment in conversation with Vanessa Oaks, where it occurred to me that when the earliest text that talks about Passover, so the Mishnah, the the tractate, the section that talks about Passover is called Pesachim, which means Passover is plural, and it really struck me that it's in the plural because you know I don't know that this was their intention. There's various historical reasons why they called it the plural, but like for me, and I hope for us. I would like us to take that plural framing as a statement that there are lots of different ways to do Passover, which I think is intuitive to people. But more than that, that all of them are deeply, richly authentic, real forms of Passover observance. And here's what I am getting at there. So this might sound abstract and weird so far. Here's what I mean. So frequently when I'm talking with people about Passover seders in particular, but occasionally Passover more broadly, we talk about the traditional Haggadah. That's the phrase that we use, the traditional Haggadah. The traditional implies there is one of them specifically, and that it has a certain set of words, a certain set of tasks, a certain set of foods. Um, Well, maybe people don't argue the foods part, but like sometimes I feel like that gets blurred in. Um... My claim is that we do not have such a thing as the traditional Haggadah in 2020. It is not something that exists in the present moment. And here's what I mean by that. Yes, I am aware that historically there is a book, there's a, a set of words, a set of prayers, a set of blessings, a set of teachings that make up the traditional Haggadah. If we went around to all the satyrs in this country and in the world, and we actually took a look at what is being said and what isn't being said in all those satyrs, what we would find very, very quickly is that the vast majority of them are doing something other than that, quote unquote, traditional Haggadah. I think for whatever reason, we're doing all these awesome new things with Passover more than with other holidays, which is fantastic. We're allowing ourselves to be inventive, to bring in new themes, to bring in contemporary liberations. But somehow I think there's something holding us back from calling those new things traditional. We're still seeing them in some way or another as like alternatives. And I really want to break that, not because I think we're somehow going to like, be boring and held back on passover without that we're actually doing a very good job already but i think we have to just acknowledge that for a lot of us and i'm speaking here of me um my custom growing up was not the traditional Hagada. i had a deep rich passover experience every year that was a seder that had gefilte fish all the the ashkenazi nine yards but like it w- We had videos that we would play. My mom broke out the little cow that made a moaning noise for the cattle disease plague. And I actually don't think that's rare. And I think we should celebrate that we've achieved this already in our path to reimagining Passover in the future. We shouldn't pretend that there is something called the traditional Haggadah that most Jews somehow have, when in fact, my guess is most of you listening use some other kind of Haggadah.
0: You know, it's funny when we talk about whether or not something is traditional, I often go way back into sort of the prehistory of it. And it's interesting for you to be going into the more contemporary history. And in a sense, what we're seeing is that there's this period, Dan Horowitz kind of jokingly but seriously said it was a time before 25 years ago. And there's some (laughs) time between 25 years ago and maybe 200 years ago that gets considered the traditional way that it has always been or the way that it should be. And it's interesting actually to look both on both ends of that period. And so I agree with what you're saying about that descriptively, it is not correct to say that there is a prescriptive Haggadah today. But I'm also thinking really back into the more distant history because I think it's important to some people, and it's important to me on some level to ask this question, well, what was the tradition? I'm pretty sure that a analogy that works is to think about the Haggadah as a cookbook. And that if I want to know how to cook something, I might get this cookbook and read it and maybe take some photocopies from it or whatever. But ultimately, what I'm supposed to do is go back and cook the thing. And it feels like, you know, in this case, I'm imagining that maybe the synagogue had a Haggadah. Maybe some wealthy person in the community had one haggadah. When we look at these old haggadot that are that actually Vanessa Oakes talks about in her in the beginning of her book because she goes and visits a collector of haggadot who has these incredible haggadot in his house. And it's so clear that a Haggadah like that, nobody could possibly have afforded to have that in their house, except for the most wealthy people. And so it just cannot be the tradition to go around and everybody has a Haggadah in front of them and we sit around and we read the book. And what I'm thinking is that it's sort of like a world in which it used to be that we had this cookbook available and somebody would go and consult the cookbook and then come home and make the meal based on those recipes But cookbooks got cheaper to produce, and somehow or another, it became the tradition that we hand out cookbooks to everybody, and we sit around reading the recipes and never actually eating the meal. And that's what I feel like the Seder that is called the traditional Seder has become. What it must have been is that people had a basic idea of what was supposed to be accomplished at the Seder, and then everybody would come home and do their best to remember what they were supposed to be doing, which is why we have these mnemonics in these songs. And so the question becomes, like, does it does it make it real when the people kind of discover that there's a book that kind of tells them that the way they've been doing it has been, quote, wrong all along? Or is actually in some way the book wrong? When we
1: talked with Vanessa Oaks, this came up, and she was talking about how actually it seems like the, the people, the, you know, in quotes the the folk are the ones who wanted there to be something written and and that it it serves this purpose of like making it a little bit easier to i mean to use a word you just did to remember to like what's the order um i actually like this is a dangerous thing to say but like maybe the folk and i'm considering myself one of the folk here um like maybe we were wrong And by the way, maybe that whole impulse that we have to remember it perfectly is part of what holds us back. I mean, I tried this exercise and it went great. Um, The people who come to my Seder, there's a lot of people who aren't Jewish. There's many people who are Jewish, but definitely, definitely would not claim to like know the Exodus story backwards and forwards. And I know you did this, Dan, in a more expansive way with the whole Seder, but we just did for the the telling of the story section, the Magid. Which at our Seder is where you tell the Exodus story, which I would argue today is a traditional Passover practice, even though it's quote unquote traditional to not tell the story of the Exodus in the, the old school Haggadah. Um, but at our Seder, we always told the story. And so we tried doing it without any book. And I literally said, okay, who wants to start? And that's the most fun part, right? Because you have to decide where the story starts. Does the Exodus from Egypt start with the plagues? Does it start when Moses is born before the plagues? Does it start before that when some of the Genesis stuff happens that then eventually leads to them going down to Egypt? Does it start with Adam and Eve? We had a whole conversation about that. Then once we actually started, I forget what we chose, but once we started, it was just like sort of rapid fire around the room. Like who knows the next part? Who And we missed some parts. We would 100% missed some parts of the story and somebody could easily critique this and say you you told the story and you missed an important part. It would have benefited for you to have the book. But I know that the that the vibrant feeling in that room with everybody yelling over each other, like, oh yeah, what's next? Oh, Miriam was was uh looking along in the movie Prince of Egypt when Moses was floating down the water. Oh, that's different from how I heard it over here. That's this, oh my gosh, how old was he when this happened? Um, oh he killed that slave master. When was that? Was that before that? Like, that whole thing was so fun. And it was very different from and Moses was born and placed in a basket by his mother and father, Amram and Yochaved. Next person. Um, So all that's to say, I I think there's a lot here about using text, not using text. Also another thing, and this for us is not a problem at all, for other satyrs might be an issue. We live in a world where not using a book does not mean not using a text. If you have a screen on the wall that everybody can see, you can all be sharing a video or a text without having to look down on your individual books. Um, I recognize that, according to some people, that is not something that they would do on Passover. In our Seder, we do. And um, basically, I think that that's one axis, the the text axis where we could benefit from really opening it up. Because yes, there are things that get missed or skipped when we take ourselves out of the book, but like, is that so bad? What is missed or skipped when we are in the book? Um, so learn about what's in that old school text. But let's recognize that all the things we do, all the random supplements we make, all the all the haggadot.com versions that we make, like those are now primary sources of Judaism. They are not us commenting or splicing together the things that are actually authentic. They themselves are primary sources of what 21st century Judaism is.
0: So I think that what we want to do in a moment is transition to some actual role modeling here. We're going to brainstorm a little bit about ways that we might be able to go even more radical with Passover beyond even what some of the conversations that we've had with our guests over the last few weeks have been, but also inspired by them. Before we do that, I just want to mention that from my perspective— there are limits to where Jewish organizations can go as organizations. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. And so what this has made me excited about, and I think Passover is a great opportunity to play this out, is what I've been calling the primordial soup of the next era of Judaism. These little innovations that people can do at home, that they don't need funding, they don't need necessarily a marketplace where they're going to sell their ideas. So there are all kinds of ways that that I imagine we can really shift our focus from organizations to just people doing things in a new and interesting way at home. And if it goes well, then you'll do it again next year. And people who were at your Seder last year and go to a different Seder, create their own Seder, might take your idea. And these ideas might sort of naturally start to replicate in the way that we imagine happening in the primordial soup of evolution. Passover is already like Hanukkah a holiday that is almost exclusively experienced in the home where there's really no authority figure of any kind uh, other than the sort of dead hand of a book trying to tell you that there's a right way to do it. Well, also certain people attending your Seder that wouldn't like so many changes. And that's a serious issue because I've heard people be reluctant to innovate at their Seder because some of the guests are expecting something to be a certain way. So maybe you do a Seder during the middle of Passover or the end of Passover only with the people who are gonna be into that. But that's something we can talk about later. But Passover really is an experience that is largely in the home without any authority figures around. And I I think some of these ideas are gonna come into what we're gonna do now, which is do a little brainstorming about what either we are planning to try out this Passover, Or what we suggest that maybe others want to play with, and we're just ideating right now. We're not actually going to do these things. But let me share with you one thing that that I'm going to try out this Passover. Um, I think when we talk about Passover, we almost always default to talking about the Seder. Passover is a seven or eight day holiday. And what about the other six or seven days? And I'm thinking a lot about those other days because there's nobody really who's You know, there isn't that uncle or grandma or whoever is coming to the Seder and is going to be very annoyed if we muck with their experience of the traditional Seder as they understand it. So I'm thinking that, from my perspective, the purpose of Passover and the methodology of Passover is some version of actually experiencing something oppressive, some feeling like you were a slave or you were a person who was suffering. And that the methodology of Passover is some version of reenactment. That's the how of it. And that if we actually feel that we suffered, then maybe we'll come out of that experience with a greater sensitivity to the suffering of others. I don't suffer enough on Passover. I don't think that any of us really do, because even matzah, there's all kinds of flavors of matzah now, and there's all kinds of matzah meals that you can make sort of cakes out of and everything. And it almost feels like matzah has been played out as a bread of affliction. And we could talk about the soft matzah and all of that stuff in in other contexts. But I'm thinking, what about fasting during Passover? And I'm really inspired by the Muslim practice of Ramadan, this idea that you can actually fast for multiple days if you just don't eat during the daytime and you, you eat before sunrise or after sunset. And 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 I'm going to try that out this year because I I want to see what it would feel like to actually spend a week, you know, Muslims spend a month. What would it sp- what would it be like to spend a week causing my experience of life to be less joyful than it usually is? And my hope is that on the other end of that especially if i practiced it year after year i would i would start to cultivate a very small amount but i would start to cultivate a greater sensitivity to to people who are struggling to put food on their table I'm trying to really get at what I see as the the why, the purpose of Passover, which is to remember that we suffered so that we will make sure that now that we are more powerful and more prosperous, we will make sure that nobody else suffers. And Passover up till now, the what has been accomplished through eating matzah. And so what I'm suggesting is I want to shift the what to fasting in order to accomplish the same why and how in a more powerful way. That's how I'm thinking about that.
1: I really like that. Um, I don't think I'll do it, but I'm A, not convinced that I will always feel that way. And B, I'm deeply convinced that you're right about the reenactment piece. Like reenactment, not only, so it's a how, but how implies that it's like instrumental. How implies that it's just like the way we get at some real purpose of Passover. And I think that the reenactment actually kind of is part of the why or part of the basic purpose of this holiday. It's it's like being ourselves part of the Jewish story, and in this case, the Exodus story, is an essential part of being, I don't know, being alive. Like you have to be in it, you can't just reflect on it. And so that's why you get, we were slaves in Egypt, we were at Mount Sinai. I'm gonna be pondering like what my reenactments can be if they're not gonna be the fasting piece because um, I'm open to being like, what if I were to break down the seven days of Passover, I do seven days, some people do eight. I'm big on the number seven. We're going to talk more about that next week and for many weeks, actually. Um, I wonder what would happen if I broke down the Passover story into like seven pieces and each day of the holiday, I in some way tried to reenact that seventh. Um, a, it'd be a fun exercise just To do that breaking up like what are the the chapters i mean there are actual chapters in the book of exodus right but like what would what would i mark as turning points would the 10 plagues all be one chapter or would they be split up like it's interesting in the in the torah itself i think it's the first seven plagues are one week and then the final three are the next week would that be the same way that i break it down or would they all be i don't know um i want to quick pivot back to something you said briefly, which was, you know, there might be the uncle or the somebody who has resistance to trying something new out at the Seder. They want to do it the old way. So, you can always go in the middle of the... You can try to do a Seder on the fourth night, the fifth night. Um, people bring that up a lot. And I'm ga- I am got to be honest, I-, I don't like it. <laughs> because I feel like once again, that's enshrining as fact, like, well, the the first night what you know game time like the real the real show we have to do it this way you can be a little off the beaten path you can be alternative quote unquote on the fourth or fifth night but that's you do that after you do the the real thing once again all of these are in quotes big on the scare quotes today um cuz i don't mean any of that to be the actual meaning like i specifically want people on the first night, the night that we do see as much as we can always try to ascribe, like there's part of us that's still, I think the first night of Passover, the first two for some people are the thing. And on those days, that's specifically when we need to do the creative work. That's not the moment to do the the traditional and then riff on the fourth night when there's a quarter of the people at the uh, in the universe that are gonna market it anyway like no we need to we need to prime time this stuff we need to we need to mainstream it we need to center it whatever analogy we're gonna use because if we don't do that then we're still ultimately then at the end of the day saying like this is for people that want to experiment and be different I'm not I don't think this is different I actually think that we to, to go to what you said before like this is traditional Capital T. Um, now, just one specific practice that I really strongly recommend for Seder. So, you did a great one for, for the remainder of the holiday. For me, at, at Seder, whatever night you do it, hopefully the first, my mom had this fantastic ritual growing up. I would go about 30 minutes before the, the Passover Seder started, and I would wander my way around our house and find the weirdest random objects I could a paperweight in some weird shape, uh, a a bookend, a... I'm looking around my room right now. There's a Girl Scout cookie box. I've talked about Girl Scout cookie cookies in the past, so that's now a traditional thing on our podcast. Um, there's random... A mug with a certain funny phrase on it. And everybody would have to reach into a bag. I'd put all these objects in a bag. You have to reach in, random object comes out, and you immediately... It's like an improv game. You have to say what role that object played in the actual exodus from egypt so you've got a slinky and you've got to explain how the israelites used a slinky as they were wandering their way across the sea because people got tired and they wanted to they wanted to show that an object could get to the other side so the slinky wandered its way in the way slinkies do and it said like i'm making this up on the spot and everybody in the room had to do that and i thought it was and i thought it was such a great practice um, it was fun. We all laughed at all of it. I mean, you'd have a, a floppy disk in like 1997 that somebody has to make an argument for how that manifested in the Passover story. And there's something deeply real about that when you say, ah, this thing that I'm holding in my hand right now is now in the story. It takes that, that reenactment. It takes that we are really in this story. It's not just we're reflecting on it from a few thousand years ago. It makes it a kind of real, even if you're sort of playing a game to do it.
0: So one quick comment on just what you were saying in terms of not wanting to do my idea because you want to experience Passover in a more celebratory fashion. One thing that is uh, an adjunct to my idea about the fasting, which I don't actually think I have the capability to pull off this year, but if the fasting works and I do it next year, then I think I'll focus on part two, which is to really focus on the Mimuna celebration at the end of Passover, yeah. which is the idea of like having a big party because now we can eat the chametz, you know, the non-matza type of foods, and um, and and I I want to actually amplify that and say not only is it a a celebration of the end of Passover and the ability to eat those foods again, but the celebration at the end of that period of suffering, like to me that's gonna become, in my experience of Passover, that's gonna become the celebratory part of Passover, the time when we actually have this experience and it's even more celebratory because we really have been suffering. And, and what I imagine is at the end of this like glorious Mimuna celebration of eating all these foods that we haven't been eating, that we have some public declaration that we are going to fight oppression for the rest of the year. Related to that, I'm thinking about the Seder and the idea of the soft matzah has sparked an idea in me, which is that the Hillel sandwich, it's this part of the Seder that I think most people don't really understand what it's all about and don't even necessarily do it. But it's this last part of the, let's say, pre-meal part of the Seder, where you actually take the, the, in the current... Haggadah, you know, now I don't want to say traditional, you you tend to take the maror, the bitter herb, the, the haroset, and and put those together on a piece of matzah and eat it as a sandwich. And, and the Haggadah says, you know, this is something that Hillel did to remember the temple times. What I think is really powerful about it in potential is that that's when you take all the symbolic foods, or you could take all the symbolic foods. We only traditionally, quote unquote, take some of the symbolic foods and put them on a matzah and eat them. But it sort of feels like you can imagine that or reimagine that as a culmination for that whole symbolic foods part of the Seder, where we're now going to create all of the, we're going to put all the symbolic foods together and eat them all at once. And maybe that's the moment where we truly become those freed slaves, right? Or truly become those slaves. It's almost like a a Eucharist, or almost like some notion that when you actually eat this and take it into your body, you actually become that. Now, the soft matzah enables that to be done more easily because I could imagine that as we go around with each symbolic food, we drop some of it on this pre-made matzah, you know, soft matzah, and at the end of that whole symbolic section, we wrap it up and eat it. Like a burrito. Uh, it feels cool to me to to ultimately put all of the symbolic foods together and wrap it all up and eat it as one at the end of that period. That feels like it could be the culmination that I think the Hillo sandwich is supposed to be, but the way that it's currently structured, I don't think we're really tending to feel that.
1: You're selling me a little bit on some of the suffering pieces I will I will admit. And, and uh, like there's ways that I am vibing more and more with this as you say it. And the reason why is because of how you talked about Mimuna. Like to me, without something at the end of Passover that officially is the like, yes, free, liberated, the suffering parts wouldn't work. There has to be something that the suffering is going towards. And so Mimuna really sells me like, okay, so if we have, if we really buckle in in a bigger way to the tail end of this holiday and to even right after it as a moment of huge liberation, then the suffering in the middle feels like it's going there. And I actually just flashed to, there's a song by Rachel Bloom from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that she initially wrote. Before Crazy Ex Girlfriend, this was one of like her early early hits called "Remember That We Suffered," um, and it's like a parody of how Jews we collectively just like dwell in all the suffering. She's actually she references the Holocaust in that. Um, there's literally a line about Hitler. But for me, the point of that song is that the remembering that we suffered is stupid if it's not towards that goal of oh we're not going to let anybody suffer again. I'm not saying that you are disagreeing. It's just like Mimuna to me yeah. is. Is a necessary completing piece of what you described with the sacrifice. Oh, sacrifice. Wow, that was a cool slip. With the with the fasting. That's what I meant. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I was thinking about, because I once again I really have been dwelling in this idea that reenactment is a core, core modality, both of Passover and Judaism generally, is what if um, in addition to or separate from the practice I described ref- before with breaking up the, the story into seven pieces, what if each day I actually reflected on the whole Passover story, the whole Exodus, but it was from a different character's perspective? And this actually feels similar to Sukkot, where you welcome in different guests each night to reflect different elements of, of humanity and the holiday, whatever. But like, okay, so one night I reflect as Moses. That's kind of the easy peasy. Um, one night I re- reflect as Miriam. One night I reflect as Pharaoh. What would that do to reflect mm. as Pharaoh? One night I reflect as Pharaoh's firstborn son. One night I reflect as, I don't know, a, a diseased animal from the from that plague. One, one day I reflect... I mean, I'm doing this as I go, but I, I like Yocheved, the, the, uh, Moses' mom, like there's a lot of different angles we could go with this. And I think that, that taking a second or more than a second, taking each day to really be in the story from a different perspective would add so many layers to what the holiday means. And it would complicate the simple message I was sending before that like, ah, this is a happy holiday. Or on the other hand, this is a suffering holiday. We eat matzah. It's not delicious, Um, throwing that out there.
0: I love that and it also accords with something that I've been experiencing. We haven't talked too much about it on the show yet, but we've been playing around with a methodology that we're trying to figure out and ultimately develop into workshops as a kind of a next step for people once they've listened to Judaism Unbound for a while and gotten into it and said, yeah, I accept this point of view, now what should I do? And we're trying to design these workshops that we can help people start to play around with Jewish practices. And we've done some model prototype workshops, both for Hanukkah and for Passover so far. And what's really struck me is that people really want to, and this is not actually something that's come from me in the framing at all, because I've not mentioned it, but it's coming naturally from people that they really want these seven or eight day holidays to have a different practice for each day. I think what they're fundamentally saying is, I don't know why this holiday has to be seven or eight days if it's the same old thing every day, or in the case of Passover, if more or less you don't really do anything on six of the days. And um And so it's kind of fascinating that people want to have some way to do something over the seven days. And now the question then is kind of, well, what should they do? And what you just mentioned, we've talked about this before, is that there are times when Jewish holidays borrow from one another as they change. So the way that the Exodus story is told at the traditional, quote-unquote, Passover Haggadah is that it's actually borrowing the language that was traditionally in the real tradition, to the you know thousands of years ago, that was used on Shavuot when you would bring the first fruit, the first fruits offering. Um, so that's a case of borrowing. So we've talked about this idea when we've talked about earlier about Hanukkah, this idea of borrowing the ushpizin, and this idea of the guests from Sukkot borrowing it to Hanukkah and saying every night when we light the Hanukkah candles, let's invite a mythical Jewish character into our home. And or...
1: Hanukkah is also built on Sukkot, by the way. That's, right, not, even, right. that's well, not even a stretch. Right. Yeah. Hanukkah
0: actually in the Book of Maccabees talks about it being sort of modeled for all kinds of reasons on Sukkot. So... I love the idea of borrowing something like that for Passover. And it's interesting because it it actually sort of helps resolve this why question that, you know, I've articulated a couple of times, but I'm, I'm struggling with a little bit, which is where if I were left to my own devices, I would articulate a hard form of this, which is let's stop talking about Passover from the perspective of, I think, that Rachel Bloom song, you know. Let's remember that we suffered in the sense that, you know, let's let's worry about the fact that we're going to suffer again some, sometime soon. You know, let's focus on anti-Semitism, which I think a lot of people tend to focus on. And, and my hard version is like, no, we are in the position of having people who are kind of crying out to us for help, and we are choosing whether or not to help them. And so when people, when we in the past have cried out to God, why aren't you helping us in our time of suffering— let's think about why don't we help the people that are crying out to us? And that it's kind of dysfunctional to focus our holidays on this kind of self-protective idea you know, that anti-Semitism can come again. Or as we say in the Passover Seder, uh, in every generation, somebody comes to want to kill us. We say that at Hanukkah also traditionally, whether that's in quotes or not. And, um, but I'm like desperate for wanting to focus on, but what if we are the ones that need to have the responsibility that we used to imagine that God to have? And so what does that do to all of our holidays? What I find interesting about the idea that you just raised is that we can do both. You know, right? If we say we're going to reflect on this in a different way, or from the perspective of a different character on each of the seven or eight days, then I think that's fascinating because then we could spend one day reflecting from the perspective of somebody who's afraid of anti-Semitism. You know, and I love the idea that that we can reflect in different ways and take the advantage of the seven-day or eight-day holiday to do that.
1: Yeah, there's something really big there about having to have a different purpose for each day. It's It's weird. It's an example of us, I think, doing exactly what we on Judaism Unbound call against, which is, you know, holding on to something that initially had a clear purpose and then lost it. Like, initially, there were sacrifices made each day of the holiday. We don't do those anymore. But and by the way, I actually think that those sacrifices were probably very deep and very meaningful. We've talked about this on the show in the past with Ruby Namdar. Like, I'm not trivializing them. There was something, there was something lived and experienced each of the days, and so that's that's important. But we. We decided at a certain point that those sacrifices weren't going to continue, and we didn't come up with any sort of replacement mechanism for days three through six, at the very least. I mean, in one and two, if you count the nights of the satyrs, for people that do two satyrs, have something. Um, it's a real absence. It's a real gap that we, I think we should just say directly, we have fallen short. We have these days that, are, that people are literally setting aside in their lives to be meaningful. And the only practice that we have for them in, for, for most people is continuing to not eat certain foods. And as I talked about with Barry Dollinger and Naomi Bain, actively eating matzah. That's it. So let's, yeah, let's, let's make the differentiation between each day so that there's actually some kind of journey that we're on, whether it's breaking up the story, whether it's, um, seeing the entire story from various different perspectives. I actually think what's funny is we did exactly what we, what you're recommending for 49 days already. Like, people came along and said, oh, there's this journey of counting the Omer from Passover through Shavuot, which is a 49-day cycle of counting the, the, the days, historically associated with, of all things, the barley harvest. But, like, we're going to make each day of that different. The, the Kabbalists came around and said, ah, we're going to connect this to the Svirot, to this mystical set of attributes of God. And we're going to make each week stand for a different general attribute and within each week. So there's seven weeks within each week. There's seven themes for each day and cycle through that. Like we are. And I think that came from a place at some point of like, oh, crap, we're doing this counting thing for a whole long time. What's the point? Like, wh- why are we doing this for so long? What's the journey? And we actually answered that. We have not yet answered it for the seven days. Uh, and by the way, I think that's an insufficient answer. There, I'd like us to have more. And we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks. But like, I'd like us to have more, even for that journey from Passover to Shavuot. But like, we we really haven't taken on five or six. Meaning the last five or six central days in the Jewish calendar. We've just allowed them to coast along by as ah yes, additional days of Passover.
0: Right. So in our closing minutes, I guess I think it would be helpful to our listeners that realistically are probably mostly focused on Seder's for this year. If we mm-hmm. have any other thoughts or ideas about how we might imagine the Seder in different ways that could be helpful to people. Um anything else that that you think about playing around with?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm going to plagiarize Brian Field for a second. I um I have my own ideas, but I want to just elevate, lift up what he said when he was on our show, which was he used the word assignments. And I actually like the word assignments, giving assignments, giving prep work to people to do in advance of the Seder who are not the hosts. I've realized in my own reflections on the Seder that I have led, and I'm using the word led because I do think that's what I've done. I have led it. I'm actually not entirely comfortable with that. I, I, my vision for what our Seder could be would be one where the leading is much more spread around. Now, at the Seder, do we do the thing where, you know, it goes around and different people read? Like, yes, we've done that, but we haven't had Everybody bring of themselves, bring some idea that they're excited about, bring a song, bring a teaching, bring anything. But I haven't, as a Seder leader, actively reached out to folks to do it, and I, I want to name why? Because I figure there were people listening to that who heard it and were like, "Oh, good idea, but I'm not sure." There's a hesitance. And like I feel a hesitation. Like, I'm nervous that people are going to feel like I am assigning them things, that I'm giving them work for something that's supposed to be a nice, it's not something you want to have to work for. But I guess at the end of the day, for me, I'd love to build a world where like, we accept that part of, you know, being invited as a guest to someone's house for dinner, like, you bring something. That's not all good, by the way, the transactional world we live in is not all good. But like, We just have sort of accepted that part of what, you know, being polite is, is that when you're a guest, you bring like a physical, actual food or drink as a sign of thanks that people are having you over. It doesn't seem like it should be a huge leap for us to say that, ah, in addition to bringing the physical substance of some kind of gift, housewarming gift, food, whatever, that, okay, you're going to bring a gift of yourself to... The dinner party. And in this case, because it's a Seder, you know, all the more so, this is like literally a moment where we are going around and sharing of ourselves in different ways, like all the more so we should be striving for a situation where ideally it wouldn't be any one person who like is in charge, but instead it would be, you know, each person providing something for for the collective we that is that room for the night. Um, I'm going to really be striving. I'm actually going to send some of those notes. I'm committing it on the air to a bunch of people. Like, I'm going to send some of those notes that I'm worried about sending to people who I think might initially be nervous about this, and I'm hopeful that it will turn out well.
0: I'll just mention a few other things, one of which I'm also stealing from Brian Field, which is the idea that Passover might be A holiday that we could reimagine as a holiday in which we embrace people in our family and in our community who didn't grow up Jewish. That that's such an important part of the Exodus story, that a mixed multitude came out of Egypt, that Moses, as Brian said, that Moses married somebody who was not Jewish, that Moses' father-in-law who gave some of the most important advice is not Jewish, etc. And we have this sort of notion, this tradition, that the Passover Seder is something that is very open to our non-Jewish friends and family and that we love to invite them to. But that's different from actually making the content of the Seder be something that is em- declaring that embracing as part of the purpose of the Seder itself. And I wonder how we would, cha- how we would do that. I wonder what text we would use. Would we use foods uh, that, to do that? So, so that's one piece. And it relates also to another piece, which I'm not really very well equipped to talk about. I mean, I'm equipped to talk about it, but I'm not really equipped to do anything about it because it's not my forte. But it would be interesting to actually think about how the meal itself is built in a way that kind of functions as part of the storytelling in its own right. And I know some people have talked about that in the past, and people have experimented in different ways, but I think it would be cool if everybody was experimenting with the meal itself. And and people have also uh, experimented with the, quote, symbolic food section of the Seder not being just eating symbolic foods, but actually courses in the meal. And so I hope that what we've done over those last part of the episode has been to get people's minds flowing a little bit. And from today, when this episode is released, there's a little more than a week until Passover, and we've intentionally had our Passover wrap-up episode not be a few days before Passover, but more than a week before Passover, because we've wanted to give you time to actually do a little bit of thinking, maybe a little bit of ordering, maybe a little bit of assignment giving in advance so that you can actually make your Passover a bit different. And if you have ideas that you come up with that you're excited about, we really hope that you'll share them with us, send us an email or convey it in some other way, and we're going to start collecting them on our website and we'll see where that goes, but we're going to start to collect these ideas and to try to put them back into the world so that other people can build on them. And and that goes back to this idea of the primordial soup. If these little tiny molecules start to crash into each other, then they start to recombine and become bigger molecules and over time that becomes a new organism. And the more that we can apply heat and you know, lightning strikes and whatever to that soup, the, the faster that that goes. So we're going to try to figure out what we can do to try to accelerate the process. But what we really need is for you to be sending your, your ideas to us. And not only before Passover, but if you do things on Passover that are photo worthy, take some pictures, send them to us. We're going to try to figure out how we can really put these ideas back out into the world.
1: 100 percent. This was a fun chance for Dan and I to just think out loud. I hope it's clear. I I feel that it is clear, um, especially in this episode, that we're not, we don't know. Like, we're, we're wondering where the heck the future of Passover Seders and Passover more broadly as a holiday is going. And the the point of us bringing up the different ideas we did, whether that's breaking up the holiday into seven pieces, whether that's fasting, as Dan talked about, whether that's whatever different Seder pieces, it's like, we, we would love it if you like those ideas. But what Dan just said is really the the Icar, the the point. Teach us. Teach us what Passover can be. And let's all just teach each other. So, um, Thank you for listening, and we're going to close out the episode with the different ways that you can be in touch with us so that when you have these ideas, when you take those pictures, you can get them to us. So first, there's our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, there's our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, there's our website, judaismunbound.com. And last but not least, there are our email inboxes, dan at judaismunbound.com and lex at judaismunbound.com. Before we go, we also want to mention that we have our new digital hub, Jewish Live, that we've launched in this moment of COVID-19 and social distancing to create a place where Jewish live streamed events online can live together um, so that people can hear about all the new digital events that are being launched online, Um, not necessarily because or only because we're excited to launch those things, but because of necessity at this point. So, we hope that you'll check out our Facebook page, Jewish Live, that's all one word, and that you'll head to our website, jewishlive.org, featuring now many programs already that are going to be streaming on a weekly basis. And our goal eventually is to have every day, sun up to sundown, or even beyond that, programming for you to enjoy and still connect to Judaism, even though it's tougher at this moment without our same in-person places of gathering. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.